Also by The Great Courses Plus. We all deserve to be able to further our knowledge and keep learning and founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone. That's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. They make it possible to learn from the brightest minds out there, including professors from the best universities in the world and experts from National Geographic and the Smithsonian. This is college-level learning, but without student loans or pressure of homework and grades. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen to lectures at any time. And they've got lectures on just about anything. History, philosophy, health sciences, social sciences, how to take better pictures, be a better writer. But one course I recommend you check out is a course done by a professor I had at the University of Oklahoma, Dr. J. Rufus Fears. And that course is Life Lessons from the Great Books. What he does, he takes the great books from the Western canon and extracts life lessons. So for example, there's lectures from Seneca's On Providence, Shakespeare's Hamlet. There's excerpts from Plato that he takes life lessons from, Homer, you name it. And what I love about Dr. Fears is he's an engaging, engaging lecturer, an engaging storyteller. So check it out, Life Lessons from the Great Books. And and if you'd like to try a free month unlimited access trial of the entire library of The Great Courses Plus, head over to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. You can get a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. And while you're there, check out life lessons from the great books, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. And now back to the show. I love that story of your, how books contributed to your transformation. And so you, you educated yourself and part of your education, you actually appealed your own conviction. You learned the law and you get out mm-hmm. and you, you, you made the decision while you're in prison. You didn't want to go back to, to life. So you decided, what was your plan? Like, what was your plan after you got out? When I went to my final team meeting, they have team meetings in prison where they bring you into this room and the prison administration is, is around this big table and they ask you what you're up to and they want to know when you're ready to go home, what your plans are. And the system is disgusting, by the way. It's horrible. They really don't prepare people for the outside world. Most people just vegetate in front of a television. They commit violence. They do drugs. Everything is available in prison. And then they're ready to be just tossed out onto the street. And they're asked a few sort of like rote questions that there's, you know, as long as they push, you know, back the right answers to this administration. They're let out and told, oh, sounds good. You know, a guy could go, oh, I'm going to be an electrician. Okay, sounds good. Talk to you later. Next. You know, so I went in front of this team meeting and they asked me, how are you, Mr. Ferrante? Very good. Thank you. Yeah. What do you intend to do when you you go home? I'm going to be a best-selling author. Ah, ha, ha, ha. They were hysterical around the table. So they said, no, for real, what, what, what do you have lined up? And I said, no, no, for real, I'm going to be an author, hopefully best-selling. Ah, ha, 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 it's hysterical again. So I said, well, that's, that's really all I have planned. You know, I can't tell you I'm going to go into construction. I really don't have any interest in it. My family was in construction, by the way. My grandfather and my uncle drove bulldozers. That was supposed to be my trade before I started hijacking. I was on a bulldozer from when I was a kid, a backhoe. I drove all kinds of operating engineering equipment and you know, I never, I didn't like it. So, you know, I didn't want to bounce around on, in, on, on gravel, you know, digging holes in the street. So, you know, not, to, not to take away from anybody who does. I think it's a great job if you, if you, if you like it. I didn't. I wanted to do something different. So I told them, I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm going to be an author. And they let me say, okay, fine, let them go next, you know, and that's what I became. So, you know, I guess I had the last laugh in that sense. Yeah, you did exactly what you said you'd do. You got out and you wrote a best-selling book. It was Mob Rules. And other opportunities came out of that, including, and this is how I first learned about you, hosting a show on the Discovery Channel called Inside the Gangster's Code, where you travel around the world to the world's most dangerous gangs to see what they're like. And it's just so fascinating because you get up close and personal with these guys. Uh, So for those who aren't familiar with the show, what sorts of gangs did you go and visit and, and interact with? 
Yeah. So I'm glad you saw the show too and you liked it. Thank you. Inside the Gangster's Code was was a was a one of a kind show at the time. Nobody had done really anything to that level. And the access we had was incredible. For example, we traveled to El Salvador and we met with the 18th Street gang who sort of controls El Salvador along with um, MS-13. They're basically the two gangs that have control of El Salvador in so many ways. You know, re- really, really, if you ever go to El Salvador, you would see how powerful they are in the country. And we, we were able to get into the jungles and go to the prisons that were hidden away in the jungles and lock in with the most vicious gangsters, you know, who, who had murdered one of the, one of the prisons I locked in with the, with the gangsters and lived with them in there. Right before we got there, they had murdered a guy in the corner of the, of the yard, right where I was standing with them because he, they found out he was a snitch and that was it. The boss said, you know, cut him up. And that was the end of him. They hacked him up right in the corner. And then another prison I was in actually in Bilibid in the Philippines, which was a crazy prison. It was a world within itself, you know, a hustling, bustling world of its own with a wall around it. It was like Escape from New York. If, if any of your older viewers remember the movie with Kurt Russell, it was like that. And right after I had left, a guy got shot right where I was standing, a gang leader inside the prison, meaning that there were guns in the prison. You know, they, they had machine guns, they had handguns inside the prison. And the, one of the gang leaders told me that off camera. He said, look, I can't say it on camera, but you know, we're fully armed in here. And then shortly after I had, I had left that prison, right, right, right after I left, a guy got killed. What I love about the show, uh, it, it is, it's, it's entertaining, but it's also like you, it's like you're, soci- you're being a sociologist or an anthropologist when you're talking mm-hmm. to these guys. Uh, so let me, let's talk about the idea of the gangster's code. When you've gone and you've visited all these different types of gangs and even your own experience being a member of a gang, does that code pretty much stay the same across gangs? Yeah. I mean, it's not like really like, it's not like a catalog of rules. You know, people are intrigued by, there are a lot of like, so in the mafia, which probably has a lot more rules than regular gangs in the mafia, there's sort of like this oral code. It's almost like this Homeric this Homeric epic where all these stories about past mob life are always retold and, you know, how so-and-so got killed and how so-and-so did this. And that was sort of like what my, my book Mob Rules was based on. It was sort of like that Homeric mafia code or Talmudic, I should even say, uh, where they, where they go back and forth with how they should do something. So that, you know, there's like, you're not, but, the, but the basic thing, you know, aside from like the minutiae of how to handle certain beefs or how to uh, introduce yourself, the basic code of the mafia is honor. Honor your, your, your fellow thieves, which is, you know, the twist of it. And, you know, you can't go with somebody's wife. You can't go with somebody's sister without permission. You, you know, those are punishable by death. A ratting, snitching obviously is punishable by death. Here's a story for you that goes back to the Homeric code, right? The mafia's Homeric code, like Homeric epic code, let's, let's say, let's call it for the, for the moment. My friend was in a beef with, uh, his sister got caught at a park with a bottle by another girl. So when he, she came home bleeding all over the place, he ran to the park and beat up the girl. And he figured if she could cut my sister with a broken bottle, and act like a man, then I could treat her like a man and hit her. What he did was wrong because it was a mobster's daughter and you can't beat up a mobster's daughter and you can't beat up a girl. Those are against the rules. So the mobster, the father, when he heard about it, he went to my friend's house and he uh, banging, banging on the door with guns, 
couple of friends. They had guns. And the mother answered the door and had a fight with him on the porch. And she's wrestling with him on the porch and told him to get out of there. So when they went to the sit down, it was ruled that my friend was wrong for beating up the girl. Even though she was wrong for cutting his sister with a bottle, he should have went to the father and let the father discipline her. Then by the father going to the house, the house is sacred and it's off limits. So nobody's supposed to go to somebody's home. So by him going to somebody's home, which he did, and offending the mother, then it was a wash. So the beef was squashed and that was it. So those are the rules in the mafia, how they're applied. And, you know, I say the home is sacred. Now it's after the reign of like gas pipe Casso in the nineties, the Lucchese family, they killed a guy. They killed somebody from my family, Bobby Borriello in front of his house. There was another guy in the Colombo war during the Colombo family war in the early nineties. He was hanging Christmas lights in front of his house. He was shot in front of his house. But before that, it was off limits to go near someone's house. That's the de- degenerative sort of like slide the mafia has been taken in uh, over the last couple of decades where they do go to somebody's house now. But back then, I wasn't allowed to go to your house. If, if let's say, for example, you, Brett, owed me a 100000 and I knew where you lived. I I could literally be killed if I went banging on your door demanding my money because I'm offending whoever lives with you, including your mother or your wife or your daughter or your sons or whoever. And by doing that, I'm offending your family and family honor is everything. And that's what it's supposed to be about. Now, I could catch you down the street and run you over with my car and the family, the same family I don't want to offend has to visit you in the hospital and bring you flowers and get, you know, buy you food from the outside because hospitals, food stinks, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to follow the code. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to kill you away from your house, but I can't do it when you're at home. So I believed in those little things. I thought that that was sacred. And for many decades, mafias, mobsters rather, no matter in the midst of the most brutal, savage wars, where, where the strife was, was, you know, you, you was so, it was so, it was like, you know, Fallujah when the Marines went in, in Iraq, you know, it was like so tense. They, they could come and go in their houses and they knew that they could, they could sit in front of the television with the window open and watch TV because nobody would attempt to go near your home. And that's, that's eroded. So those are how some of the rules have eroded as well over recent years. So it's this sense of honor. That that's that's the code. That's like sort of the that's the, it. That's the that's code. it. Yeah. yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, omerta. Omerta was originally supposedly also too. This is an interesting word, omerta. Omerta wasn't just silence. We we look at it today as Americans. We look at the word omerta and we say, "You shh, keep your mouth shut. You know, don't don't rat on people. Be quiet." Like, or if you know, people come from neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods. When I was young, if there was like. Somebody was shot on the block. All the neighbors, even if they were legitimate people, knew to keep their mouths shut. They understood Omerta. The cops came. Anybody see anything? Everybody said no. And the cops got in the car and went home. You know, that was just the way it was. But Omerta, the original meeting of Omerta in the Sicilian form from Sicily originally, when the mafia first formed in Sicily, Omerta meant being a man and doing something yourself. So for example, if I'm in jail, and let's say you double crossed me and you're outside and you're not giving me the money that's due to my family. You're supposed to drop off money at my house and give my family money that's due to me while I'm in jail, but you're not doing that. So I'm mad at you. Now, if I have to do 20 years, omerta means I have to, I have to handle things on my own. I have to wait the 20 years, come out and then see you and take care of you or get my comrades on the street to go, to go find you. But I don't rat and get the police to help me get you. But nowadays, people don't follow Omerta. They say, okay, 
Brett's not paying my family. I'm going to rat Brett out. I'm going to become a, a confidential informant or I'm going to become, I'm going to the witness protection program and I'll give Brett 20 years. What you're doing is you're enlisting the government or the police force to be your, your co-conspirators and punishing your, your, your sort of like enemies. That's not Omerta. That's why the Sicilians never went to the police. Omerta means if you, somebody shot my son yesterday, I don't go to the police. And this was the old mafia. You don't go to the police. You take care of that justice yourself. You find out who shot your son and you find the guy and you take care of it yourself. It was being a man. And it originated in Sicily because Sicily couldn't rely on the police. You know, here in America, we can rely on our police. We can rely on the FBI. They do a darn good job, you know, in keeping the streets clean. It's why we could, you know, notwithstanding some neighborhoods in this country that are very dangerous, for the most part, America is a place where you know, your daughter could run out for milk and come home without anything happening to her. And I feel bad for the neighborhoods where that can happen, what can't, cannot. But in Sicily, you couldn't rely on the police force to have the streets, you know, kept lawful or, or the government you couldn't rely on. The mafia did that. The Piazza Don, the, the Don who hung out in the Piazza all day, controlled what happened in that neighborhood. So if something happened to your daughter while she went out to buy milk, you didn't call the police because they weren't around. They couldn't be relied on. What are they going to do? You called the Piazza Don and you said something happened to my daughter yesterday. He puts word out. And next thing you know, whoever the culprit was is brought to justice. So that's sort of where it came from. And it's obviously, it, it's obvious rather why the, why the word has lost its meaning in America because we have a strong society that we don't, you know, we don't rely on the Piazza Don for justice. But in the small Italian neighborhoods, when I was growing up, that were very highly, you know, it, it was, it was a dense, like, for, for example, let's say not even my neighborhood, my neighborhood was my particular neighborhood where I grew up was a mix of German, Irish, Jewish, Italian. But let's say Corona. Corona was a very small Italian enclave, enclave. And that, that enclave, they relied on interior, internal justice rather. When, like, when I was a kid, if you did something wrong in Corona, you didn't have to wait for the cops. You were, you were getting, you had to look out, not for the, not for the Plymouth with a red light on top. You had to look out for the, the Cadillac with tinted windows. That's who was coming for you. So, so again, you know, things have changed now. Neighborhoods are more diverse where that strong Italian culture that came from Sicily or even Naples isn't necessarily around as much nowadays. So the word has deteriorated along with sort of like the, you know, the, the, the less and less of a need for it. Right. And I imagine the, the countries where gangs are prolific, they're, the government's typically weak there. And so people like, that's, that's the alternative. Right? There you they go. Can- I mean, you just said it. So I kind of like summed it up when I was talking about Sicily. El Salvador, they can't rely on the police, the soldiers, the, 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 the federal or state police, the soldiers. They can't rely on them. For, for to keep them safe from the gangs, the gangs have overcome the streets. So if you're gonna, if you open up a McDonald's in El Sal in San Salvador, for example, if you open up a McDonald's, you need to pay, you need to pay one of the gangs, either 18th Street or MS13, depending on whose territory that is. And if you say to them, "Well, why don't you go to the police?" They're gonna look at you like you have two heads because are you are you asking me to kill myself? You know, there's a story way back when, I don't know if you, you, some of your listeners may remember there was an old chain, supermarket chain in Queens when I grew up. I don't know how far it stretched across the country, if at all, but it was called Wallbounds. 
W-A-L-D-B-A-U-M-S, if I'm not mistaken. Wallbaums was like a supermarket chain started by a family. And Ira Wallbaum, I think, was the sort of the, the patriarch of the family. And at one point or another, he was told to, you know, hold, to sell Castellano, Paul Castellano, the mafia, Gambino family mafia boss, to sell Paul Castellano's chickens or else. So Wallbaum puts Castellano's chickens on the shelves, obviously, and he says, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? Fight with Paul Castellano? If he wants his chickens on my shelves, I'll put his chickens on my shelves. So the FBI went to Ira Wallbaum and asked him at that time, back in whenever it was, the 70s, and said to him, hey, Ira, why don't you wear a wire and why don't you tell them no and why don't you? And he looked at them and said, why don't you protect me from them? If you can't keep them away from me, then don't expect me to keep them away from me. In other words, you can't rely on me to do it. You know, you have to do that. If he doesn't exist, Paul Castellano, then I don't have to deal with him. But as long as he exists and he's pointing a finger in my chest telling me I have to have his chickens, then I have a problem with him. And the best way to compromise that problem is to, is to acquiesce. So, I mean, you know, there's a good example of, you know, that's just, and nowadays, obviously, the FBI is strong enough to keep the Paul Castellano out of the, usually, you know, they still have a hold in some places, the mob, but they're not as powerful as they used to be. I don't believe they control the chickens anymore in New York, but they did at one time. So the more and more the FBI and, and the, uh, New York State Organized Crime Task Force, for example, gets a hold of what's going on, the less and less people who are in business have to deal with mafia elements. My friend was a union boss. I could, t- I think I could say his name. He died, Anthony Calagna. He was a Lucchese member. He was a leader of a union and he was a great guy and they loved him. You know, he negotiated. He got them the best deal. When he inherited the job, there was, he walks into an office and sits down and he told me the story himself. He says, Lou, day one on the job. These envelopes are coming on my desk. Guys are bringing 5,000, 10,000, and they're dropping me off envelopes all week. And, you know, it's built into the desk, you know, and I just inherited it. It wasn't something that I worked. You know, it might have been started by Tommy Lucchese, three, three fingers brown Lucchese, decades before Anthony Kalagner ever came into the picture. But when he took over, now I'm not giving, I'm not saying he was an innocent man. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, but I'm just trying to make the point that when things are infiltrated, if there are innocent people and, and Anthony wasn't, he was a gangster, but if there are innocent people sort of who, you know, there could be a secretary in Anthony's office who just goes to work nine to five, you know, it's up to law enforcement to keep those people out in places like El Salvador. They haven't reached, I think, the level that we have with regard to law enforcement. Law enforcement in the United States is much stronger than the countries I went to. The Camorra in Naples, I went to visit the Camorra in Naples. The Camorra in Naples controls Naples. You know, the, the, the police are doing a darn good job as best they can, but they don't have a hold of it. You know, they're, they're pretty much running Naples. If you go to Naples and you said, I'm going to build a nice hotel over here on the waterfront, you're going to get a knock on your door and the Camorra is going to tell you, I don't care if you go to the police or not. We're going to chop you up and put you in a barrel and dump you out to sea. Unless, you do what we tell you to do. I'm curious, in all the gangs you visited, what do you, like, what, what, like, human needs were these gangs fulfilling? So, obviously, they were, like, an alternative to government. Yeah, this is a great question. But, like, what, but why, why did, what, what drew, I mean, typically young men were the ones that were joining these gangs. Like, why, why that? I wanted to, great question. I wanted to create a show. My, my idea was to create a show that has some educational value. I don't want to just do, I get contacted all the time. 
Hey, Louie, you want to do a mob show? Hey, Vinny Papa, what are you doing over here? Hey, go down, see Gino. I don't want to do those shows. I, w- I want to do something that helps people. Where Just like my books. If I write a book, I want it to help people in some way. The same thing with my shows. I wanted to go inside the subculture of the gangs and find out what made them tick. So per- just in answer to your question, the best question that is il- illustrative of, of what makes these guys tick is El Salvador, the gangs in El Salvador. I went in there and these guys love their families and yet they were all killers. Every single one of them had to kill to get initiated into the gang. Every single one of them was a tried and true killer. And they had killed a guy, as I said, right before I got there. So what what was behind these guys? They loved their families. They couldn't wait to get visits from their mothers and their daughters and their wives, hugging and kissing them. You know, that's sort of like that. They had that Spanish, like, which is very like Italian, the warm culture where we kiss and hug a lot, kissing and hugging on visiting day. I was there for visiting day. What made them tick? What happened was there was a story behind it, and it was very interesting. When El Salvador got sucked into a civil war, a lot of the fathers were killed or fled the country or disappeared, and a lot of the sons had single moms. And a lot of the single moms desperately tried to keep the family together by working two jobs, three jobs. Some of them fled to the United States and would send money home. And it became a very sad picture for these single young men, these young men who were basically orphaned and they needed family and the gang became their family. And they look at each other as family, just like the mafia. It originally started as family. This is, you know, La Familia, La Cosa Nostra, La Familia. It's the same thing with El Salvador. It was the family that was behind this. And, and the, 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 the need for family, it was fulfilled by the gang. These are my brothers. These are my family. You'll see that over and over in the El Salvador episode. These are my brothers. These are my family. And when they get visits from the women, they love them. They kiss and hug them. They love their mothers. They love their wives. They love their daughters. They're not insensitive men. They're not monsters. And I wanted to show the human side of them. And I did that. I think I successfully did that. I cried with one of the guys at the end of the film. I mean, there's no way, you know, I, I, I thought I got to the heart of their humanity. There are heinous criminals. There are heinous crimes. Those people should be punished. You know, I'm not, I'm not a softy. I understand, you know, that we, we have to keep society safe from certain people. For a time, I thought society should be kept safe from myself. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to admit it. You know, I'm running around the streets with guns. What am I doing? So, but, but in another sense, I had humanity in me. Obviously, I'm talking to you now and I hope your listeners could hear it. They did too. No one's a lost cause. We're all, we're all God's children. And I wanted to show that. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be public punished and people should be let out of jail. You deserve to be punished for what you do, but don't forget that people are human. And, and that's what I think I achieved in that, in that, um, you know, look, in the end, at the end of the day, this country is torn apart right now so badly. Our country, the United States, you know, with this, with this, with the political, and I don't want to get into politics, obviously, but with the political, you know, division here. I think the film from sort of like from a left point of view, it was like, we can't show gangs, period. We can't show people who are evil and people who are bad. And from a right point of view, 
we can't side the, we can't show the good part of them. We can't show the good side of them because then we'll think, you know, people like that who are bad are really good. So I think I got caught in a crossfire where both, both political sides, you know, found wrong in the films. But look, I'm not going to stop going out and doing what I think I do best, which is educating people as to sort of like, you know, these subcultures in society. Well, Lou, where can people go to learn more about the the work you do? I guess the best thing, you know, my I haven't updated my website in years. I should. I'm in the midst of writing a new book right now, and I'm tweaking my the last edits on my novel that I'll be coming out with also beginning of next year, hopefully. But you could go to my website, louisferrante.com, L-O-U-I-S-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E.com. If there are any questions, you could drop me an email through there. There's a contact sheet. I will get the email. That's the best place. It shows my books and some of the work I've done, but I need to update the site. There's a lot more I've done that's not on there. At some point I will. I just been like totally dedicating all of my time to writing my new book, which I'll hopefully be done with next year uh, and, and have it out next year as well, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, Lou Ferrante, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Lou Ferrante. He's the author of a few books. Check out his books, Unlocked, about his time as a mobster. Also, Mob Rules, about business lessons you can learn from the mafia. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, louisferrante.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash gangsterscode, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance, health and fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcher Premium, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a month trial free of Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>